Hello, Gatchin Bonas, and welcome to episode 44 of season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. That is very, very true today with this interview. I'm bringing y'all with Jessica Salgado, the iconic Salvi-American based, LA-based poet who speaks to the experience of the Salvadoran diaspora, specifically in Los Angeles, which is really central in her poetry as well. She shares her journey to becoming a published poet and the tensions around writing about a motherland steeped with historical trauma. I want to thank the patrons who donate and are monthly subscribers on Patreon. Without you, I truly wouldn't be able to create this podcast, have the caliber of guests that I have, and keep bringing y'all the content that you love. So I hope that y'all enjoy this episode. Bye. Hello, Cachimbonas. Today, I am so very excited to be having probably the OG Cachimbona, I think we could say, Jessica Salgado. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So I followed you on Instagram and I know a little bit of your story, but for folks who might not know, what made you start writing poetry? Yeah, well, you know, I started writing as a little girl, kind of like in the first grade when I learned how to write. My parents, you know, are Salvadoreños that moved here during the Civil War. Neither neither one of them wanted to move here. It was like a lot of confusion growing up, right? Like there was like a lot of secrets a lot of like sad feelings, um, grief, right? Grief from them having left their lives back home. Um, they met here, but they both are from El Salvador. And so, and then like my dad's alcoholism and like so much family that had migrated here at the same time. It was like, it was easy to get lost in the shuffle of all that noise. And I felt like the only place where I was always listened to was in my writing. And so I started writing poems and journaling and, just telling stories the minute that I was able to. And I've been doing that ever since. It's so inspiring to hear, especially because you're writing into what some have called the Salvadoran culture of silence. Because I think that, yeah, you know, we are a people who have experienced a lot of collective trauma and don't always know how to process it and so there is just things that are unspoken of like the civil war itself for example like you know it is the reason that I'm here but I still don't fully know exactly what it was like to live in that day-to-day because my parents don't like talking about it Mm -hmm. and I think it's so beautiful that like your poetry is filling that silence you know it's like refusing to be silent I mean it is and it isn't you know like I think I had to learn as I've gotten older that that time period isn't for me to tell Mm -hmm. stories that I'm telling it's the aftermath that's why I have a poem that I wrote it's the first poem in my third book Hermosa and the poem is called Diaspora Writes to Her New Home and it was kind of like the realization Mm. that like 
I keep trying to tell the story of my my parents' migration and that I guess it is it's a huge part of my own story. Mm-hmm. But it's also more to the story than just that. Yeah. And my story, my like what I try to share is like, look, these are where I started and this is what I grew up with and the people around me, this is what they had, but this is what I did with it. And this is how it affected me. And this is how I'm this complicated, chaotic, love-filled, but fucking like really spiteful. <laughs> like it's all these things that I have inside me that come from a lot of that. And also like I was born in Los Angeles, but my parents were always just like, no, your home is in Salvador. Like your home is over there. We own a house. Like my mom's family has a house. My dad's family has a house. So it's like you own property back there. Like back home, we're somebody. We're just here because we ended up here. Like we have to be here. And so I grew up with that. And it was kind of like a little bit of a wake up call or I got really frustrated when people were like, you're appropriating stories that are not yours. And I was like, no, but like, this is how I was raised, you know? Right. So I had to learn that as a child with a diaspora, it's my obligation to take the story, like, to tell what happened after the migration. Right. You know, and, and that's that's a lot, <laughs> you know, but yeah. I've been learning and the story changes as I grow. Not that the story changes, but the way I tell the stories changes, I go. But when I was little, I didn't understand that my parents were refugees. You know, I was just like, they came here from Salvador and that's that. But like, I got like hella cousins and uncles here. So why do they miss Salvador so much? You know, and then Mm. the older I got and the more I pieced the stories together, because my dad didn't like telling stories either back Mm -hmm. of the war. Mom did. My mom's a big storyteller. That's where I get it from. She'll tell you about like the military running through her canton or the guerrilla coming and my uncles going to a meeting without realizing they were going to a meeting and all that. But then my dad, everything is secret and you hear about it like in hush ways around him when he was alive. And then he passed away before I started writing books. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like I wasn't able to ask him the questions I can ask my mom now. Right. And so, yeah, and so I, I think the job of us, of the diaspora, is to just, like, make sense of the make sense of it and, like, lay out the next part. Like, what are we doing next now that, okay, we're here. What's next? That's a good segue to ask about L.A. because L.A. is, like, really important to your writings and to your point, like, you're writing about your life. You're writing about the aftermath of migration and that happens in L.A. Why is the city so important to you and actually, like, to so many Salvadorans in the diaspora too. I mean, yeah, like, you know, so many of folks migrating ended up in LA, right? For whatever reasons. There's entire pockets of Salvadorans here in LA. There's MacArthur Park, right? Which is like Alvarado is the Salvadoran corridor. Like there's we're everywhere. <laughs> we're very we're very present in the city, but most folks at a glance confuse us with like Mexicans yeah. or you know, other things. But I think that we've made LA very much our own. And it feels in many ways like the big city in El Salvador, like San Salvador. Mm. San Salvador is so huge, right? And you could know a colonia, but you don't know the whole city. And yeah. LA is that some of us live in our pockets of our neighborhood forever. And I grew up in Silver Lake, which is now one of the most oh, generous yes. neighborhoods in the mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. But part of my writing... So, okay, so my parents migrated here. I was born when my family still... No, my family already lived in Silver Lake, and I think I was born right when they had moved here. 
So all I've known of home is Silver Lake. And so this is my neighborhood and everything was walking distance. And we knew all the señoras and the señores and the borrachitos that hung out on the street. They, I knew them because my uncles were borrachitos with them. And yeah. <laughs> you know, the cholos were like kids that I went to school with or the older brothers and sisters of my friends. And it was like the hood. And there was like carnicerias and little tiendas and all of that was all around us and they're gone. And so if I don't write about it, then it, people will think it never happened. I'm not the only one writing about it, right? But in telling my story, I have to tell the story of like how my city changed around me. And I get told a lot like, you need to move out of LA. You need to experience another city. You need to experience other parts of the world. Everybody needs to move away from home at some point. And I'm like, mm, my parents already did that. Right. Left everything behind. I travel for work and I've seen 40 of the 50 states. Every time I'm in another state, if I don't like it, it's nothing like L.A. And if I like it, it feels like some neighborhood in L.A. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I live in the best city in the country. I don't know if it's in the world, but I live in the best city in the country. So why would I move? And it's so powerful to to stake your claim to the city and to say to refuse to leave in this context of really intense gentrification. Yeah. And I mean, in many ways, it's not the same, but it's the same. And let me draw this parallel. People have all of these misconceptions of El Salvador that they've had them for all, for always, right? Like, yeah. it's this and it's that and it's not, it's not. The shithole country. Yeah, it's a shithole country. It's a third world country. It's this and it's like, it's a country full of so much beauty and like mm-hmm. people that take care of each other, right? It's the same as Los Angeles. Well, we're not, I like economically it's not the same right like in that or like in the power way but people make up versions of LA that are not true Mm -hmm. right or they see like very 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 small neighborhoods of LA and assume that that's all of it like the influencer crowds or the actors or the Hollywood scene right and then I'm like that's great and that's a lot of what the work in LA is but the people from LA like so much fly shit comes out of the city you know, like we've set the tone for so many things in 2016, 17, that whole movement of Latina platforms led by women online. Many of them were from L.A., you know, and like we've had such a strong hold on shaping so much of what culture is beyond the surface of Hollywood and all that. And so I'm really proud of my city, of its brown and black folks, of Armenians, of the Koreans. We got Filipinos. We've got Ethiopians, we've got Thai folks all over. Like, it's it's so diverse. And if you went to high school in LA, you went to high school with all those people. You know, my high school was all Latine or Armenian. And my church was Latine and Filipine. And so I grew up eating lumpia and all that kind of stuff, too. And like, in what other cities, like in other cities throughout the country, unless you're in like in a metropolis like New York, right. to have those same things. So I love LA. I could go on forever about my, <laughs> my love for LA, so... I love LA too. And I like have a lot of love for LA because even though I've been based in Tucson, Arizona for a while, basically since I started, yeah, actually definitely since I started but there's always been like a really loyal LA listenership. And I think that LA is the center of so much Latinx culture, content creation, like arts. And I think, yeah, the only thing that sucks is just like increased living prices. Of course. But that's why, like, your decision to stay and to fight that is so powerful because 
you know, it's hard to live there. It's a, it's a hard place to live. I was thinking about moving to LA recently and then I looked at rent prices and the differences and I was like, hmm, I think I'm going to stay oh, back. Yeah. <laughs> I think what I tell people, I'm like, if you're comfortable where you're at and you could do what you, what you do where you're at, do it. Come through and visit whenever you want. Mm-hmm. It'll be a good time. Yes. Right now, like our cost of living is so expensive. And also our unhoused population is so astronomical that I feel like instead of importing people into the city, we need to find the people in the city homes, you know? Yes, yes. And so all these high rises popping up, I don't know where these luxury buildings, I'm like, no, those should be homes for for folks that don't have them. But that's a whole other other kind of crisis that it's, 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 you know. Yeah, it's like a whole other podcast topic. (laughs) <laughs> no, uh, the people of the people of LA, we we want that, but then there's the people that hold the money that they're like, but what about our money? And right. I'm like, then go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> go to Calabasas. Leave us alone. Calabasas, exactly. The Valley. <laughs> yeah, go with the Kardashians and to to ourselves. So you've shared about your journey in writing and how you did that for yourself through self-publishing. Can you share a bit about what made you decide to take that route with your writing? Yeah. So just in full transparency, my three books, Corazón, Tesoro, and Hermosa, were not self-published. They were with an independent publisher. But I'll go through the steps of it really quickly. Yeah, yeah. So my first collection of poems, the Luna poems, is what you would call in, for poets, we call them chat books, but in the rest of the world, they're usually known as zines, which is kind of like a booklet stapled down the center kind of thing. It's usually about 12, 15 pages. And so my first collection of poems, my first three collections were zines, where like, it's a form of self-publishing and you take those two shows, you sell them for 10 bucks, you make you make more than what they paid you at the door, you know, and like, that's part of the hustle when you're getting like the smaller gigs at like little open mics and venues like that. And I always knew that I wanted to write a book, that that I wanted to write, that like, I've always been a writer and that was always it was going to happen. I was going to write a book. Whether it was going to be successful or not, who knew? But mm-hmm. I knew that I was going to write a book and there was going to be a, I was going to have a book on a shelf, even if it's just in my own home. I had been talking about doing a chat book for so long that one of my friends, Hoel, got annoyed and he was like, Jessica, just send me all of your poems and I'll do the layout for you and all that. So we sat together, he did the layout, he like edited my manuscript and then we took it to the printer he lent me the money to print it it's it, it just having it just had its 10-year anniversary the luna poems yeah i saw that and, and so i would take it to shows and it took me like two years to sell 100 copies but i did it and then in 2016 i was already starting to book like larger speaking gigs you know that were paying me like a thousand dollars and more at the time and so for me that was a large amount of money like i was working minimum wage at a cvs you know right and so I was just like, oh, I, I just need to book one gig a month and I'm already making more than what I make here in a month's paycheck. So I quit my job. <laughs> I quit my job and I published my third collection of poems called Sentimental Boss Bitch. Mm. And the process of figuring that out. And then and then I didn't realize that I quit in the winter when the schools were out of session. And then I was like kind of broke again. And I was like figuring out the rhythm of that when my publisher approached me asked me if I would be interested in publishing a book with them. And at the time, a few of my friends had already published with them, a few of my writer friends, and I had loved their books and loved what they were doing. So I said yes immediately. And he said, when can you have a manuscript ready? And I remember it was March. 
And I was just like, we took the meeting like in February. And I said, I can have a manuscript for you in May. Mm. And he was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I got, yeah. Cause that's how I work. I got to do it now or it's not going to happen. <laughs> of course I left it to the last minute and I put a book together in two weeks. Wow. And it was what ended up being Corazon. And for me, that process works because when I'm running out of time, I have no choice but to get out of my own way. Mm. And an independent publisher is a publisher that like is housed within itself. Everything they do is in-house. There's a top five publishers that own smaller imprints, you know, like Penguin, Random House, I think. It's five different ones, right? And then they have imprints that they own. So there's a lot of um, names of publishers that you think stand alone, but they belong to like a larger corporation or a larger oh, publisher. Mm-hmm. So an in pub- independent okay. publisher might not have the resources that like the machine behind it that a large publisher does, right? Like publicist and connections with media and all of that stuff. And I say that not to discredit my publisher because they're amazing. Mm-hmm. But together we accomplished so many things with my books and it was just me. Right. It was organic, just organic interest in your poems. Organic interest and literally no, nothing, like not even like sending out advanced copies to people or anything like that. It was just like, I have a book and it's going to come out on this day and everybody's going to read it on that same day. Nobody else is going to have it. And this was 2017. And I feel like everybody, like I feel then publishing just kind of exploded and everybody's been publishing a lot more since then. Not, I'm not saying that I pioneered that, but I think it was just the wave of how it happened. There was an interest in poetry at the same time. Yeah. Like, yeah. was blowing up, you know, and you had my dear friend Rudy Francisco on the scene like, doing all kinds of, of things. And so people were leaning a little bit closer into poetry and it was Instagram poetry was getting popular poems on Instagram. And I, you know, I reaped the benefits of that. I leaned into it completely and use social media for me. But yeah, and so that's how I got. And then now with this fourth book that I'm writing, I have agents now. So that means that now I am going to be working in the large publisher thing, you know, in that world or not. We'll see whoever offers me like the sweetest deal. You know, I'm still mm-hmm. to being with an independent publisher, but I want to play with the the big wigs, you know, and see <laughs> what I can get from them. If I want to, I my thing is always just like, okay what how can I what's next right can you talk about what your next writing project is and like how you're deciding who to go with in terms of publishers yeah so my next project is called Mentirosa I've been talking about it for years and I finally started writing it when we hang up I'm gonna go work on it but Mentirosa is a collection of poems. It's another collection of poems. And it talks a lot about what happens to a young woman when she's told that she can't be trusted with her own body mm-hmm. or, or, or or with the truth. Mm-hmm. Right. And like how what becomes of her then? And so it tells the story of me being a catfish because I spent 15 years of my life catfishing on party lines and online and all that kind of stuff. And kind of it's like I left my body for all those years mm. associated with with my physical self. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of poems that touch about around that. I have poems that talk about also trying to escape into like toxic relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, even though after like I stopped catfishing, but 
I didn't stop dating shitty men. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so then like, ultimately it's like, okay, so now that I want to come back into my body, what does that look like? Mm. What does it look like when I'm living in my truth? And, and it's like, I'm not trying to have it end in a very like, and then I found self-love, which Corazon does that. Corazon t- takes you through the story of me thinking I'm not worthy of love, finding love, having it turn into painful love, and then like leaving it and finding love living everywhere outside of myself. But in Mentirosa, it's not going to be like that much of a like, and then now love is everywhere. It's going to be like this job of loving my body and being in my body is hard. Yeah. And I'm up for the challenge, but it's hard. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where I'm at with the book. I want the largest distribution that I can get. And that's what the larger publishers can yeah. I feel like it's a story that n- not only fat people can connect with or not even someone that looks like me. I feel like it's a very relatable experience for so many of us growing up. Yeah. It's a very millennial story, you know, like the chat rooms and I'm, I'm so excited for this. Yeah. And I'm really excited to see it starting, starting to come together and my agents have been so patient with me. They've been like waiting for me to, to work on it since like 2019. And because my pace before the pandemic, before 2020 was every year I was releasing a new book. Yeah. And even before that, I was doing zines. So from 2013 to 2017, no, from 2013 to 2019, I released six collection six projects wow you know and so it was like almost one a year right to go from that to me not having a big project 2020 21 22 I felt so lost I felt like I plateaued I used to tell my manager my career was over <laughs> she's like Jessica calm down In 2019 <laughs> I was like, some, she's like, some people take 10 years to write the next book. Yeah. Know? But if you got to be honest, we're, we're children of migrants. You know, we, we place value in our work. Yeah, 100%. And if we're not working, we feel we're not being productive or we don't deserve, we, or we're not earning our keep or, or mm-hmm. we're not a person of value, you know? And so in the last three years, I've had to like, figure out a lot of things <laughs> internally and not try to find so much identity and being uh, like, what is it? The grind mode, right? Yeah. Like, I used to be like, y'all complain because you don't work as hard as I do. And I work my ass off. And if you worked your ass off, you would have it too. And I'm like, girl, you sound like those people that are like, I pulled myself up on my bootstraps. Yeah. You know? If yeah, I, or like, like Kim Kardashian, no one wants to work these days. Yeah, and that wasn't like what I was trying to say, but it was getting very close. <laughs> yeah. And so the universe sat me on my ass and was just like, you need to figure some shit out. And luckily I did. And so now I'm, I like, I love grinding. Like I realized that that's just what brings me joy, immersing my not grinding. I love immersing myself in projects. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm letting myself do that. But I also am letting myself be okay if a week goes by and other things, you know, because yeah. I, still, I still have to do speaking engagements because that's what pays my bills, you know. And so if I'm at a speaking engagement, I'm not writing. And I used to feel so guilty about it. But I'm like, no, it's all work. Definitely. So you need to chill out, girl. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that part of the advice that you would give 
like young Latinx writers who are trying to figure out their first project, for example, like, you know, do you wish that when you had started, when you were first starting out writing that you did have the balance that you have now? Yes. I like, I wish I had the balance that I have now, but now I miss the hunger I had then. Really? Yeah. Because it's different. There's an urgency to it. Yeah. You're not established yet in your career. When everything, like when nothing but dreams are ahead of you, right? There's this urgency. You're hungry. You're trying to validate yourself. You're trying to get people to like see you and acknowledge all the work you've done, right? And so there's this like, it's there's this excitement and everything just feels so exciting because you don't know what's on the other side of it. And then once it becomes your career and you've been doing it for a minute, you kind of become a little bit like jaded, a little like, you know, where you're like, this thing didn't work out, there's going to be something else. So there's not like this urgency or this panic thing, you know, and, and I used to, the way that I used to write back then was so different to the way that I write now. Mm. Now there's expectations, right? The first book, your first book is going to be the book where you're going to have the most freedom. Mm. One has anything to compare you to Mm. like when it comes to yourself. You know, right. yeah. In your third, fourth books, and you're like, oh, this sounds like all her other books, or right. so different from all her other books. I didn't like it, or I miss when she wrote about this, or oh my gosh, she's writing about this again. You know, and mm. all of that starts going in your head, and you're like, and you're stopping yourself, and then you're like, how can I make this different than than the other things that I did? And then you're like, bitch, get out of your head. And it's just this whole thing in your head where you're like cheering yourself on, but also like stopping yourself. Yeah, there's like a stressful part of success. (laughs) And and, and I've been talking a lot about it more recently because I think that people think you publish a book and you're happily ever after. Right. No, you got it. Because you know what's happening to me right now? My last book was three years ago. Yeah. So. I think that's okay, though. No, no, no. Which is fantastic. Yeah. You have to be okay with your last book being three years ago you have to be confident in that that I wrote something that's going to withstand time and so now when the new book roundups are happening and the current books are getting highlighted in attention which they deserve because mm-hmm. they're the ones that are out there now trying to make numbers and establish themselves you have to be okay with that and not feel like you're being forgotten yeah to not feel like you're being overlooked or like whatever and it took me a minute to like figure out that that's what it is I'm like, oh, I was always being written about because there was always a new book. So if I don't write a book about, I might not have that many articles or whatever because there's no new project. And that has to be okay. You can't be chasing the spotlight all the time because I had a friend tell me when she's like, you got to live a little to be able to write a little. Yes, I you love know? that. Mm-hmm. And if I'm chasing always being like the subject that like... Mm-hmm being spoken about or whatever one I'm not leaving space for other people mm-hmm. and two like I'm never gonna enjoy what I have because I'm gonna worry that I'm worried that I'm losing it all the time yeah but like now I'm just like you know like you reached out for a podcast interview and I was just like oh I haven't done a podcast in a minute I'm excited but Jessica in 2020 would have been like this podcast didn't invite me on why didn't they invite me on? you know and mm-hmm. and I was like Jessica that's not who we want to be in the world Right. I talk to myself in third person. <laughs> <laughs> like when, it's, when it's really serious, I talk yeah. to myself in third person. 
I'm like, we don't want to be that person. We don't want to be the person that takes up space when it's not my turn to take up space. Now, when it's my turn and it's like just, yes, I will go and take up all the space that I need to take up and do everything that I need to do. But like, I can't be talking about community and I want there to be more writers and I want people, whatever. And then me get upset when another writer gets a highlight that I don't or gets right. an that I don't. No, I got to sit on my ass and applaud them and be yeah. so proud of them. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> I feel that too, you know, I'm especially because like there are a lot of new Salvadoran poets being published. It feels like, like in 2022, there was like five Salvadoran poets that released new stuff. And I could see where that anxiety could come from, but no, like you're, you're like a real OG Salvi poet. Like when I was interviewing Javier Zamora, I was like listing out Salvadoran poets and he's like, and Jessica Salgado, you know, so you're not forgotten. Do not worry. I'm so proud of, I'm so proud of Javier. And everything. Yes, right. Exactly. Even, in, even recently, I had to check my ass. Ego and ego. And I'm speaking about this and I'm not saying that I'm thinking about all these things all the time, but every time, you know, the intrusive thoughts come up, right? Yeah. And then, and Javier was in the LA Times, right? And mm-hmm. he Solito, Solo, Solito? Solito. Solito. Yeah. Solito. I he and I were in conversation when he came to LA. I read it. I've championed that book. I've gifted it. I believe in it a hundred percent. Deserves everything he's accomplishing. Everything. Mm-hmm. And then I saw that he was in the New York Times and I was so excited to see him on the New York Times. And I was just like, if he did it, I could do it, right? I felt that way. But then I saw the headline that said first Salvadoran to be a New York Times bestseller. And I was like, fuck, I wanted that to be me. <laughs> and then I had to check my ass. That's really cool. I felt like that would probably crossed my mind too. <laughs> I mean, like, it happens, right? But then I had to check myself and be like, no, no, no. You know, like I'll be the first Salvadoran woman to get a New York Times bestseller. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'll do that, but also like, and we don't always need to be the first either. It's kind of nice to be like fourth. <laughs> you get a better run at it because there's, there's been some stuff that I've been it's at the hard to be the pioneer. It's hard, and it's sometimes it's not all it's cracked up to be because they're not no. figuring it out. You know, you get you get like the trophy's not that cute. The medal, <laughs> no, honestly, you don't have sponsors yet, and then the next year they have like, you know networks and all this stuff and you're like wait a minute you know but it, everything that's why you're never gonna it's gonna be goldilocks everything's always gonna be yeah. too so my thing is head down keep working mm-hmm. not in some like grind mode stuff but uh, in like in like yes, a humility way yeah like mind your business be happy for people mind your business mm-hmm. and if you're not and if you don't have a project that you want to work on that's fine pero callate, you know like <laughs> Yeah, and like you said, like people have their moment. And that my thing is like I saw that article about like Salvadorans, like a whole the whole new like wave of Salvadoran poetry. Yeah. Oh, I cried when I saw that article. Like it just I started out in LA where in, I kept getting called a Chicana poet when I had <gasps> things and I had to Yeah, correct, right. I had to correct people on stage so much all the time. It did I mean I was also part of a collective called Chicana Fire. Which is like yeah. a Chicana name, but I didn't, yeah. I didn't understand all of that when I walked into it, you know. Right, 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 right. But I remember that I would get booked for things in very Chicana spaces, which is still true to this day. But I would always be really like, 
adamant about correcting people, it was very like hard to hear of other Salvadoran writers or poets. And now there's so many of us that were around at the time, but we just didn't know of each other. Yeah. So now to know that like there's been so many of us pioneering and there's so many more coming up, like Janelle Pineda. Shout out to Janelle. I knew Janelle when she was a teenager. She was oh lounge. And she did she was just like, I don't know. I'm shy. I don't know. I'm good. And I was just be like, tell your story. We need more Salvadoran poets, blah, blah, blah. She went off to college. And then I had nothing to do with her success, but I've been so happy for it all along. And now she's willing fellowships and she's just like killing the game, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, a phenomenal writer. And, and, you know, but like, that's what I'm like. I'm so excited of seeing folks start off as like these young folks that just love poetry. And maybe they were like, Jessica, you're the one Salvadoran poet I know of. And then now they're like, even lapping me in certain ways. And I'm happy because I'm like, Go, you go break doors open, please. And then yes, and then let me in. Because <laughs> yeah, I just got tired. <laughs> exactly. So the last question that I'm asking all interviewees this season is, what is something that is inspiring you lately? Something that's been inspiring me lately. Aging. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I'm 39. I'm going to be 40 next year. And I'm looking at a lot of things, having a lot of existential crises, but also like looking at things with tenderness. And my favorite thought or or idea that I've been exploring is that, you know, sometimes you have these partners when you're younger. And for me, whether this is toxic or not, but I keep in touch with most of my exes Mm. in my life, whether we're friends or we're just like on social media with each other or whatever. And every now and then when you catch up with them, it's kind of like this time machine to who you were before. Mm. I'm like, and I like the idea that there's a dude somewhere in Chicago that remembers 30 year old Jessica mm. with her 30 year old body, you know, and then now I'm 39 and I have more gray hairs and I'm softer in certain places and I'm my knees creak now and all that kind of stuff. But I, which is fine. And I'm proud of everything I am today, but I think that it's almost like time capsules that you leave in these relationships and friendships as you go along. Wow. And and I'm also seeing my most of my friends and I were on our 30s or already in our 40s. And so it's been really cool to see like everybody's hair get grayer. Mm-hmm. Wrinkles start to come into spaces, you know, like everybody grown a little bit when they get up from seats. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like we've survived. Right. You know? We're still here. And we've been witnesses to each other's lives and I think that that's really beautiful and then also I just had a conversation with two of my friends and I was just like in some ways I'm more in my girlhood like I'm not going to be a girl anymore I'm a mm-hmm. woman you know like 40 yeah I'm a senora yeah, right? girl woman shit right there and for a decade of life yeah getting called a senora sometimes makes me like mm, no nah, I'm not ready for that you know but I'm like um, ready I'm there I'm 31 and I'm there <laughs> This is a whole this is a whole other conversation we'll unpack another like in another conversation. But as a fat woman, I feel like I have to perform high femme all the time. Mm. Considered beautiful or to be taken seriously and respected or as a performer, you know? And mm-hmm. and so I'm just like, oh, if you're calling me senora, I associate that with like frumpiness and like and Got it. stuff. And so it's been like I've been having to like unpack with my resistance for being like a 40-year-old woman feels like, and it's not that yeah. I'm afraid of 
I'm afraid of the implications that it comes with, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then also, all of my exes, well, most of my exes, they're having their own midlife crises. Oh, I can imagine. So now all of a sudden they want to get married. All of a sudden they want families. All of a sudden, <sighs> all of a sudden. That's crazy. And I'm, and I'm looking like a juicy steak to them, you know? Because <laughs> I'm so. You resist. <laughs> no, and I, I don't, don't want to be anybody's wife right now. Not in, the way, in, not in the way that they want wives, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's so for those of you that have your 40, like the 39, 40 in the distance, it's going to get interesting. You know, if you date men, they never get it together. So there's still there's still excitement around the corner. <laughs> I'm like, wow, you keep in touch with all your exes. I'm like, but dang, no. I've like abandoned all my time capsules. Like, <laughs> you know what? I'm a cancer. I'm a cancer. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a Taurus. So I'm like, we're done. We're done. You know, I'm a cancer. <laughs> sun, Mercury, and Venus. Wow. Like, if I loved you once. Like I love you forever. Yeah. Somebody once asked me how I break up with people, and I was like, I don't. (laughs) That's like truly crazy to me as a lifestyle. (laughs) That will ride out until like they get a partner or I get another partner. And then it's just like it just goes like that. Like right now in this moment is the first time it's like this last year and this year have been the first time that I've been like, no, I'm lying. I was with somebody last year. This year. Oh, the past six months. The past, the past seven months. And we're gonna give <laughs> the past seven months have been the time, the first time that I've been truly single in my life. And in 2021, I was truly single too. And it's like a whole different thing. I have so much time for activities now. Yes, we love that. <laughs> you know, like I fucking I try to learn to knit and I didn't like it. But you know, I'm out here. You know, I'm 39, but in my heart, I'm always going to be 22 and a mess. And I love (laughs) And we love you for that. (laughs) It's Um, fun. Yeah. Jessica, thank you so much for giving me your time today. This was amazing. And I hope to have you you back on when you release your next project. Absolutely. I will go ahead and add you to the people. Yeah. Tell your agents. Tell your people. (laughs) I have a book. Let me come talk with you again. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully that's sooner than later. But thank you so, so much. Yes. And it's been an honor to be talking to another Cachimbona. Ah, I love that. Bye. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast hosted and produced by Yvette Borja. The audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans as a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. If you want to support the podcast, if you've thought to yourself, I really enjoy Yvette's content and I want to help the podcast get to the next level. The best way to do that is to join the Patreon community. You will get early access to episodes like this one and exclusive access to the Lit Review, which are book club chats I have with other women of color. You can become a patron for as little as $3 a month. So please check the link in the show notes. Follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Send the episodes that you enjoy to your friends. Talk about it on social media. I really, really appreciate it. Bye, Cachimbonas.